this. I said, I'm willing to put the, to wear the wire and bring you the information on that tape that Mr. Nusir asked me to build the bomb, if that's what you're concerned about, but I don't testify in court. He said, no, then go home. I said, go home. The people asking me to build a bomb, you're telling me, and I'm the only one who is giving you ears and eyes inside the cell, you tell me, go home? He said, yes, go home. I said, okay. And I told the three agents who were standing at the door of Mr. Danbar, I said, okay, I'm going home. But if the bomb got built on and went off, don't come and knock on my door. Hello, everyone. That was ex-Egyptian army officer Imad Salem. In the early 1990s, Salem infiltrated the terrorist cell of the blind sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. He did this for the FBI and reported back to them on Rahman's plans for a campaign of kidnappings, assassinations and bombings in New York City, providing information which could have been used to stop the attack on the World Trade Center in 1993. However, as we've just heard Salem state, rather than utilize this information, the FBI, and in particular the head of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, Carson Dunbar, dismissed him, then failed to follow up on any of the leads he provided. What could possibly have been the reason for this? That's the question I'll be putting to Adam Fitzgerald in this latest episode of our series, as he explains the wider context of the 1993 bombing. He starts off by explaining more about Imad Salem himself. Imad Salem was a former Egyptian officer um, who moved to New York City in 1987 from Egypt. Uh, Imad had worked uh, a couple of jobs in New York, and in 1991, um, he found himself situated as head of security at the Woodward. Uh, the Woodward was an old Eurarts hotel on Broadway, downtown Manhattan. Um, 19, in August of 91, an FBI agent by the name of Nancy Floyd, um, who was head of the Foreign Intelligence Office uh, and was looking for a Russian diplomat who may have stood in the area, and she inquired about whether um, this Russian unnamed diplomat was uh, staying at the Woodward, and she gave her card to Imad Salem. Um, and to her surprise, Imad Salem called Floyd back days later, informed her that the Russian that they were looking for was there, um, but the INS had not informed the FBI about his um, um, him being there. Floyd came away impressed at Salem's investigation and intuition, and she asked him if he was, uh, interested in becoming a source within the FBI and within the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Um, he accepted, but uh, there were some conditions. He told her about uh, his background. Um, Salim seemed to have found what he was looking for. He actually wanted to impress upon uh, the superiors there that he had, in, had deeper intelligence ties to the Egyptian military and to have his talents finally being used instead of working these menial jobs. Um, he was now being courted uh, by the FBI and the New York Terrorism Task Force to become an intelligence agent, an asset. Um, uh, one day he suggested to Nancy Floyd that the FBI should start investigating into uh, an Egyptian who was more dangerous than any Russian spy or diplomat. And Floyd was completely ignorant when it came to Middle East Islamic fundamentalism. Salim uttered the name uh, Omar al-Rahman, the blind sheikh to Nancy Floyd. And then from there, Salem gave her a crash course regarding who Al-Rahman was, the dangers he possessed and where he was. Floyd was completely, completely flabbergasted. Um, it was overwhelming and shocking that no one in the FBI, especially in the New York field office, knew that Rahman was even inside the country, let alone the danger he possessed to the country itself and how he got to the country was through, uh, through the U.S. visa application, which he was on a terrorist watch list, but it was accepted by the CIA. Um, Salem was seen as a valuable asset, one that could very well be tasked to collect pertinent information. Floyd introduced Salem to FBI agent uh, John Etisov and uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force NYPD Detective Napoli. And together, just them two, they headed the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force. And they didn't have any superiors, it was just them two. So it was here that they began making Imad Salem a full-on informant who would work inside the Al Farouk Mosque where Omar Abdel-Rahman teached. And Salem agreed to go undercover and work with the terrorist password, but he had one condition. And he didn't want his identity disclosed nor to testify against the assailants because he feared that these people, rightfully so, 
and they would come find him and his family who still lived in Egypt and kill them. So Salem told Floyd and Napoli that he'd be willing, that he'd be willing to wear a wire if, if they could promise he'd never have to appear in open court. So the FBI agreed to use Salem purely as an intelligence asset. If he developed uh, information that a crime was about to be committed, agents would then move in do the necessary surveillance to make the case. Uh, Salem then became a member of the Alpha Mosque. Um, during the months that he became known as like a trusted confidant within the top members of the group, which included uh, Mahmoud Abalima, who was nicknamed the Red, because he had full red hair, uh, one of the founding members of the Al-Kifa uh, Refugee Center, and a top prominent uh, Imam Ali Shanawi, and Ibrahim Al-Gabroni. Um, he would become the blind sheikh's most entrusted bodyguard and driver, only because of his connection to Egyptian intelligence, and he, he himself was an Egyptian, much like um, Omar Abdel Rahman was. Um, he would drive Rahman around the cities like Detroit, Tampa Bay, um, Arizona. He would drive often. You would hear him talk about in the various plots, and one in which um, that he was driving to Detroit um, uh, while he was wearing a wire. He was wearing a wire at this point, and Rahman insinuated that. He wanted the Egyptian president, Hosni Mubarak, assassinated by rifle. Um, Salem uh, would record all this, but somehow the recordings would be botched, and he couldn't uh, complete uh, the recording itself. Um, in time, Salem would then visit Al Said Nusser, and he would receive calls from him also, which the FBI, by the way, monitored both his visits and calls. He was here. Salem would recall that Nosir had plans for bombing of 12 Jewish locations, including banks and, and um, neighborhoods in Brooklyn, all around Manhattan as well. This would include, uh, later on, the bombing of New York City landmarks, in which New York, uh, Omar Belrakhbad confided to Salem one evening. But uh, Salem would, would run into constant problems, and one of them was constant unavailability of Antisub and Newest Napoli. Because Salem would, would um, begin his operations at night, Antisub and Napoli would already be off work and they wouldn't answer the call. Since Salem now wear a wire, he would call Nancy Floyd at all hours of the night relating information. Meanwhile, Floyd wasn't his handler, but she took on that job that Antisub and Napoli seemingly could. But the FBI grew suspicious of Salem's relationship with Floyd. And it would later be noted that the FBI didn't trust Floyd, for one, because she was a woman, and two, was that uh, she became the most trusted uh, confidant to Salem. Meanwhile, the FBI wanted that availability, but they couldn't, because he didn't, he didn't trust them, and they didn't trust him. Um, and most assuredly, the FBI most assuredly opined that Floyd was harboring the intelligence, the human intelligence from Salem. One evening, uh, one of the blind chief's top members, Ibrahim Al-Kabroni, asked Salem if he knew how to build a bigger bomb, a huge, uh, much bigger bomb. And Salem responded that he could, since he worked for the Egyptian top military unit. Um, after a while of stalling on the bomb, Salem then went to Abulima. He went to Iraq with Abulima and said that um, he has a feeling he was being followed by the FBI. This would give him an out. And it worked, by the way. The blind Sheikh told Salem, go into hiding for a couple months. Um, but during this, meanwhile, the FBI uh, terminated Salem, Carson Dunbar was head of the New York uh, field office, terminated Salem as an informant. And Salem persisted, he disagreed with this. And during a phone call with Nancy Floyd, he relayed an ominous message. And he stated, uh, quote, don't call me when the bombs go off, end quote. Yeah, so the, the FBI's handling of this and just in the segment we've looked at so far, it's incredible or incredulous even. They, they'd rigged the van up with listening devices and picked up on the blind shake, plotting the assassination of the Egyptian president Mubarak, and then they messed up the recording. I believe they didn't record the conversation Salem had at the prison with Al-Sayed Nasser, even though they could have done, where he basically he, he confessed to the, assassin, uh, to the assassination of Maya Kahani, they missed that one. Salem in his book is absolutely damning of Carson Dunbar, this guy that comes in from a different unit to run counterterrorism 
in the New York office. And um, Dunbar, even knowing this plot is going ahead, pulls out the inside man. The, the FBI's actions are completely inexplicable from the outside looking in. And I hear them attributed to, you mentioned sexism. Um, Salem feels they were quite racist against him because he was a, a Middle Easterner. Uh, right. I think Dunbar talked about him coming there with sand and issues and telling him how to do his job. Uh, petty and, and incompetent. The FBI come out of this just looking awful, just absolutely awful. Um, but let's, we'll, we'll return at the end maybe to that kind of assessment. Let's carry on with the narrative for a moment. Um, so Salem is is out. He won't wear the wire. They put him through lie detector tests, which he says as a, an Egyptian military officer, he knew how to how to throw them, how to give inconclusive results. And he was annoyed that they wanted him to do this and he doesn't let people get inside his mind. So he, he deliberately threw the results and that they, they out they they chucked him out. This five hundred dollar a week informant. Um and then the blind shake takes a course of action to to bring another bomb maker in. Is that a good place to pick up the narrative? Yeah, sure. In fact, um, I'll I'll lead off with that. Um, when Imad uh, Salem was out, the information went back to Abdul Rahman that they needed another replacement, and right soon, uh, Omar Abdul Rahman actually called uh, an imam in um, trusted imam in Pakistan and stated that do you know anybody that could come to the United States right away? Um, to do some business here, and they suggested, yes, give you Abdul Basit Mahmoud Abdul Karim, and his uh, other surname would be Ramzi Yusuf, and everybody knows him as Ramzi Yusuf, but his real name, his birth name was Abdul Basit Mahmoud Abdul Karim. He would have many surnames over the course of history, um, down the line, but he was born that. Yusuf is somewhat of a malevolent figure. Um, Many believe he was born in Baluchistan, Pakistan, or Kuwait, but it's not relatively known. Uh, he went by many names, uh, and he would later have an infamous uncle who would have labor, later ramification in history, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Hmm. But um, Ramsey Yusuf went to a university in the um, United Kingdom. Um, he also went to Oxford for electrical, electrical engineering to learn English as well. Um, he then traveled to Peshawar to learn about bomb making and uh, he went to a, a terrorist training camp there, Al Dean. Um, he would later learn about bomb making, you know, how to convert them into watches, soda cans, and whatnot. Um, he was very skilled in that. He was also known as a bungler as well. Um, one that didn't really refine his, uh, his skills. Um, I'll bring this up in a little bit. Um, but while he was at the Philippines, perhaps um, he went to the Philippines to train members of Abu Sayyaf and the Moro uh, group, um, it would be a, a government undercover operative named Edward Angeles, um, who would later testify that he saw Ramsey Yusuf in the Philippines running a training camp there with um, uh, uh, Mohammed Kamal Khalifa, who, by the way, was uh, Bin Laden's brother-in-law and a known terrorist authority. But um, Abdul Rahman needed a, an immediate replacement for Salem, and uh, so Yusuf agreed to come to the United States. On September 1st, 1992, Yasef arrived at the FK airport along with um, Ahmed the Judge, um, a fellow who has a more, who's a more shady character and who is even more experienced bomb maker than himself. Um, but our judge was a counterfeiter in the West Bank. He was born in the West Bank and was recruited by the Israeli Mossad to help infiltrate Palestinian groups. Um, he was given a release after a short time then became involved in uh, infiltrating Arab terrorist centers. He met Yusuf while in Pakistan. Now, while well, Yusuf was using a faulty Iraqi passport, immediately requested uh, political asylum from the Iraqi government. Um, meanwhile, Ajaj was even a more manipulated passport that fell apart. And while inspection of his luggage, they found um, bomb-making material, documents, videos of terrorist training manuals. Um, he was held in detention. While meanwhile, Yusuf was held. Uh, for 72 hours and repeatedly interrogated. But the INS holding cells were overcrowded. And while he was released under the persistence and um, uh, negation of one female INSA officer, he was given a trial date, which, of course, he never went to. And seemingly, he, met, he was given a free taxi ride. He had no money left. 
So he was given a free taxi ride by an Arab he met outside the airport, detention center, driven to the Al Farouk Mosque. Okay, so just, some- just let me pause you for a second, because this is yeah. one of those points that people find, again, hard to believe about the whole story, that um, a judge came in, I think I'm saying his name right there, um, with everything but a cap on saying, I am a terrorist. He had the manuals in his bag and everything, and no one made the connection between him and Ramzi Youssef. No one thought, hey, is he traveling alone? And Ramzi Youssef was let go. And that's... So I have heard the suggestion that Ajaz was there to take attention, like he of drugs mules. They send someone through with a little bit of cocaine strapped to their body, so the suitcase of cocaine, that the person with a little gets caught, and then the whole suitcase or the truckload goes through uninterrupted. Was that uh, a conscious plan, that Ajaz would get caught to allow Yusef through? Or? Yeah, because you remember it was Yusef who was being called upon by the, by the blind sheikh. And in order to uh, allow him entry, was that a judge had to make himself know, uh, you know as you said, so more, somewhat more obvious, that the attention of the agents would focus on him rather than Yusuf. I, I didn't know about his um, Mossad connection. It's actually, he, he, was actually count, he was actually counterfeiting dollars uh, uh, in the West Bank, and he was arrested. And the act, uh, Mossad agents actually, Peter Lance writes this in uh, the book that you're currently reading, uh, Thousand yeah. Years for Revenge. He states that Ajaz was confronted by Mossad agents and that um, he would become a valuable asset uh, would form um, because Ajaz was, wasn't religious himself. He was uh, primarily coming from a more moderate background. Um, his family lived in the West Bank as well. Um, so Ajaz gave Ajaz, um, instead of five years in prison, he gave Ajaz an ultimatum, we could release you you have to inform us about these uh, Palestinian groups that are residing abroad and in, in the Middle East. Somebody agreed. And he infiltrated, uh, these, uh, especially the PLO, um, and gave them information there. But they found out that Yusuf was uh, traveling to the United States. So they, they persuaded that guys to go along with uh, the infiltration of the al Mosque, and he did. Whether, because you know, also, you know, to talk about that, you know, he has to also know that he's going to be arrested and charged with the bombing itself because he actually goes along with it. And he's given so, it for years. Am I understanding this correctly? You're, you're saying he was going there at the behest of Mossad. He was working for Mossad when he entered the United I, States. I, 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 yes, I think he, he actually, he has, he has links with the, with the Mr. Green. Okay. Uh, well, what he, became of him? Did he get a lengthy prison sentence? In, oh, in, I mean, there's, there's so much... There's not much information regarding a judge. I actually did a profile on him on my Facebook page um, regarding the background of as best as I could. But there's little known documentation regarding a judge uh, himself, um, which leads me to believe, because Yusuf actually calls um, a judge numerous times in the prison cell about regarding how to build a bomb, because I think Ahmed Judge is a much more skilled bomb maker than Yusuf. Yusuf actually... Um, I'll, I'll talk about in later interviews where he uh, blows up bombs in his hand. He actually yeah. loses um, part of his eye. He loses, uh, he burns himself a third percent of his body regarding a bomb that he's trying to build to kill um, Pakistan Prime Minister Benzi Yapudo. Um, but there's numerous instances where he bungles up bombs in his yeah. So I'll talk about that later. But the judge, he keeps calling a judge from his prison cell that he's paid. But the judge actually. Um, uh, is later released um, and given back more, more profoundly is given back the, um, the suitcase and the belongings and everything that was in it, the bomb making manuals terrorism right. I that now. Yeah. And, and he gets all that back under the protest of the New York City prosecuting attorney, Mary Jo White who was head of the, uh, uh, the New York City uh, attorney general attorney there um, okay, so did, did he get released, do you think, because of his connections to an intelligence agency, Mossad or another one? I'll leave that up to you. I don't have concrete evidence to suggest so, so I'm going to say believe that with a grain of salt. Okay. But, it, but it, it is shocking to note that here's a guy who gets caught and most assuredly is, de- is there for, as a patsy and so that Yusuf can get away. But the judge gets caught with all this um, all this incriminating evidence, which would, of course, you know, lead to believe that he's a terrorist, obviously, with all the manuals and videos that he has, but profoundly, he gets released, 
and he gets back all the terrorism manuals and videos into his uh, person much later. And he gets a job as a pizza delivery uh, driver in Texas. Um, that's where he lives. He goes to Texas and he lives there. And Yusuf still stays in contact with him. It, it just goes to show you that, like, how in the world did this guy not get uh, a longer prison sentence or just, you know, or, or stays in prison with no bail whatsoever. And but yet he's, he's free. And it, it, has to, it has to come at the behest of someone much higher than the New York City uh, Attorney General's office or the, the U.S. Attorney General's office, because why else would he be released? Okay. Now, like I said, plead that with a grain of salt. And, it, and it's unclear what happened to him from that point onwards then. Right. It's very little to go with. We only know that, um, I'm pretty sure that he's filed at this point, but by either uh, Israeli intelligence or by U.S. intelligence, but he's not given the prominent primary attention that someone like Yusuf has. But he's most likely in the shadows, so to speak. Okay. It, it just, it's just, there's a lot of questionable um, uh, suspicion regarding Ahmed a judge that isn't given uh, due attention. Yeah, that's, that's incredible, yeah. Okay, so, so back to Youssef then. He arrives at the Al-Qaeda Refugee Center, the Al-Faruq Mosque, and gets to work on this plot, presumably. So what's his story and involvement and role then in the, the World Trade Center bombing? Right. Um, well, Youssef immediately aids in the building of the uh, urea nitrate bomb. Um, only he would know, along with Omar Abdurrahman, where the bomb would be placed until he forms the others on the, um, the day of the attack. And it would be the World Trade Center. Um, Yusuf, um, from here, we routinely call a judge from his apartment in which Yusuf stayed in New Jersey. Um, a judge would assist Yusuf in making the bomb by phone, as well as the physical labor which came from Mohammed Salame and Mahmoud Abalima. Uh, so they began assembling the one, it would, it would be a 1,500 pound urea nitrate fuel oil device. And the construction of the bomb would take place in a storage facility in New Jersey where they lived. Yusef would have um, ordered the ingredients needed to take place in a storage facility, would have them delivered there without any problem. Uh, Salome would use his, his uh, car, which was a Sherry Nova, to ferry like the nitric acid and the area between the factory where they ordered the storage facility where they built it. Um, Salami would turn out, by the way, Salami would turn out to be um, one hell of a horrible driver. Um, uh, even driving an accident where Yusuf would be uh, temporarily hospitalized. Um, meanwhile, uh, uh, during this, a judge would be released to give him back the suitcase and whatnot uh, to the shock and dismay of the federal prosecutors in New York. And from there, on, on, on the day, February 26, 1993, um, Salami would rent a rider truck using his name, giving his address in New Jersey. By the way, uh, his address in New Jersey and the phone number that he would give the apartment where he rented uh, was from a landlord named Josiah Dux, who would later turn out to be a Mossad operative. Um, Abdel Rahman Yassim would be driving the truck to the parking garage of the World Trade Center in the North Tower um, because Salami was such a horrible driver, they didn't trust him. Okay, so just run that by me one more time. Who was renting an apartment from a Mossad agent in this? Okay, it was uh, Mohammed Sal Salame. Mohammed right. Salame would rent this New Jersey apartment from Josie Adas, who was a landlord. But Josie Adas would turn out to be um, uh, a Mossad agent himself. And right. how this came to be, which is the document, which is a document that are redacted, it's not known, and no investigative uh, attention was given to Josie Adas because on the day of the bombing, Adas flees the country actually, and there was no follow-up crew regarding Adas itself. The phone number that was given to Adas is also redacted in the, um, the FBI report. To this day itself, it's still redacted. That's uh, 26 years later. Right. So, um, so already we have two pretty substantial Mossad connections. Right. What you're seeing is a much like 9-11, you're seeing that the Israeli intelligence are following around these uh, Arab terrorist cells. So it's almost like they're trying to um, see if the operation goes according to plan and whether it happens. Because remember um, also, too, that this 9-11, this 1993 bombing is blamed on the Palestinians themselves. Um, because Yusuf actually calls in and states that it's coming from the 
Palestinian Liberation Front, and it turned out to be just a small uh, little group itself. But uh, you can see that where the blame is going to. Remember on 9-11 itself, that when the Mossad operatives get arrested on the New Jersey Turnpike, um, they, the driver, Oda uh, Delner, states to the cop, as soon as he gets out of the car, goes, we are not your problem. The Palestinians are your problem. Your problems are our problems. So what I'm trying to do is there is a correlation between Israeli operatives uh, in the 1993 bombing and the, and the mm -hmm. 9-11 bombing where they're trying to blame Palestinians themselves. But the Palestinians themselves would have no link to either uh, the operations themselves. Uh, but to go, go ahead. Yusuf's motivation was specifically Palestine. I think this is an interesting point that he wasn't an especially Islamic terrorist. He was a sort of nominal Muslim who liked women and wine and a bit of the high life and, and said he valued a lot of the kind of society that existed in the United States over, say, a severely religious society, in contrast to the blind sheikh, who was a, a real fundamentalist. Um, his use of state of motivation was principally around the support the United States gives to the state of Israel and their then suppression and victimization of the Palestinian people. And he saw U.S. citizens as being culpable because of their taxation that they pay to the U.S. government. That's correct. In fact, during his sentencing, not, not to uh, go off track, but during his sentencing, he does make that quite clear. Uh, Yusuf, he states that the reason for the attacks is that uh, the United States has committed atrocities toward the with the Palestinians in, in primarily being a strong ally to the state of Israel, which are afflicting these, um, these uh, human dispositions toward the Palestinian people in the West Bank and uh, in Benin uh, itself. But um, with, with these harsh conditions itself, remember also too, just to, to, to reinforce your point, that Yusuf himself was not a religious person. He was actually someone who's um, uh, using these terrorist tactics to, to gain a, a political strategy, to deal political strategy, to sway the United States what they were doing and what they were uh, doing toward the Palestinians themselves. He also brings up uh, as well the plight of the Iraqi people and, and that uh, their economic sanctions, which led to so many people being killed, children being killed and whatnot. Elon also relates to this as well. But yes, uh, Yusuf was not very religious at all. Um, neither, although the blind sheikh himself was religious, but it, but it, it also uh, is ironic that the intelligence apparatus, the CIA, um, is involved with Rahman, not with Yusuf himself. But there is also conflicting uh, evidence to suggest that the CIA did get to Yusuf while he was in Pakistan, but there really isn't any concrete evidence to suggest so. But it is suggested by um, ex-CIA agents that he did. Um, whether you want to believe that, I'll leave that up to you. Okay, well, maybe we'll, we'll touch on that in, in a bit. Just we'll come on to the actual day of the bombing in a minute, then, but just through this period where Youssef is constructing the bomb and forming the plot, the FBI missed various opportunities to intercept again, even in the absence of their inside man, Imad Salem. There were these conversations going back to a, the um, I've forgotten his name, the fellow in prison. Um, the oh, fellow oh, came uh, you're talking about Ahmed Ajaj? Ajaj, yeah. Um, that's going on. And yeah, um, they weren't tracking people involved in the cell. Can you speak to some of that, the missed opportunities? Well, they, surely this was a bungled operation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, when, uh, when Imad Salem was uh, terminated as an informant, the FBI lost their eyes and ears, of course, inside the cell. Um, John Antisep and Lou Napoli tried their best to keep up with uh, the cell itself. And on the day of when the bombing was to take place, they followed the van and supposedly they lost the tracking of the van itself uh, from New Jersey to Manhattan. Um, whether you want to believe that or not, I'll leave that up to you, whether they truly lost uh, the tracking of the, uh, the rider truck or whatnot. But the FBI seems to bung up most of what happened with the 1993 operation when it comes to Ahmed Judge, when it comes to um, the Al Farouk Mosque members, and when it comes to Ramsey Yusuf itself. They really either, I, I would happen to believe more so that they 
just didn't have necessary um, manpower or the ideal goals of trying to defuse the cell rather than say that they were involved in the cell itself. Um, because this is what a lot of people within the um, uh, truther uh, groups, they like to say that the FBI itself was um, involved with the terrorist plot of bombing the World Trade Center. I think that's ludicrous. I just think that they bungled this operation. If you want to okay. say that, that there were other intelligence operatives that were in the know, sure, but the FBI was not. Sure. Okay. Yeah, because there is this. I mean, maybe we should just touch upon that. Um, some of the recordings Imad Salem made, because he, he started recording his conversations with his FBI handlers, because he was he was scared they were going to bump him off ultimately. Can I just interrupt you, Richard? That came when Imad Salem came back. Yes. The, yeah. Sorry, I, I know it's a later point. I'm, I'm mentioning it now because yeah, okay. some of the recordings, if you took a snip of them, it sounded like. Imad Salem was saying he built the bomb on behalf of the FBI that went right. off in the Trade Center. And that even got on the, the evening news at one point and became quite a big conspiracy trope that did the FBI build the bomb? And straightforward, the answer is no to that, right? They, they didn't. Youssef um, came in and built the bomb that went off at a later point. It was Imad Salem's English wasn't quite as right. good this, then. It just sounded a bit confused. That's right. In fact, this is a great point you bring up. And I want to make this quite clear. That People within these uh, truth groups like to say that the FBI helped build the bomb. Um, but no, this is two separate instances. When it comes to Yusef's bomb, Yusef, Abilima, and, um, and, and others helped build that bomb, Salami and others. They built the bomb in a New Jersey warehouse. They had that warehouse bug, but when Salem lost, was terminated as an informant, they took out all the cameras, all the bugs, and they didn't follow anymore. They just bungled that operation. When Salem came back into the fold after the World Trade Center bombing of 1993. Then they, they, they gave um, the, the other cell, the mock members of the cell, to build the bomb. But they gave them false blasting caps, a powder that mm. wasn't bombing, that was false powder, in order to, to, to implicate them in, in uh, the landmark plot, which I'll get into in another conversation. Yeah, sure. Yes, there was two different distinct um, uh, areas, the 1993 bombing and the landmark plot. The FBI was involved with the landmark plot, not with the 1993 Okay, so the day of the bombing itself then, if we're okay to move on to that, the 26th sure. of February 1993, talk us sure. through what sure. happened. Uh, now, given the task to drive the truck was uh, Abdul Rahman Yassin because they didn't trust the army. Um, Yassin drove the truck to the parking lodge in the North Tower uh, they parked at the underground um, B2 level. Yusef ignited this 20-foot fuse. Um, and as they were got into a, a, an adjoining car, which they were to get away, they were met uh, right at the edge of the, uh, the, the parking garage where there was traffic leading out into the streets. Um, and according to Peter Lance's book, A Thousand Years for Revenge, uh, they state that the participants in the car were all losing their, uh, their nerve, so to speak. Abilima actually, I think he was the passenger, he actually gets out and he's like nervous, he's trying to watch the truck. Meanwhile, Yusef, according to Peter Lance, uh, is really just uh, just as nervous steel. And he doesn't really care that if he gets killed in a bomb, he doesn't even sweat it. But um, they, they leave uh, and at 12.17, the bomb ignites. Now, the plan was to have the North Tower crash into the South Tower, um, causing maximum damage to Lower Manhattan and killing thousands of people. However, the bomb was placed in a spot where the beams were not compromised, and it ended up killing six people um, and injuring over a thousand. Three of the people that were killed were in this lunchroom, uh, which is about I, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going to say approximately 300 feet where the, the point of impact of the explosion came from. And one was a, a, a pregnant woman, two were men, one was a, um, a middle-aged Hispanic man who just got married, I believe, and they were killed gruesomely because the bomb itself sh sent shockwaves through the room. And being that they were hit with the, um, the, the concrete itself, they, they exploded from the inside out. And the Terrorism Task Force, the FBI, 
Um, actually, when they investigated past, they found uh, human remains uh, splattered among the walls itself. But, um, yeah, like it was only, only when I watched a documentary on this recently, I didn't realize, because you hear six people, and you think it, it sounds like a fairly localized thing to a, a relatively small area of the right. building. But the whole building was affected because smoke rose up throughout it. There were people trapped in elevators for hours. There were children trapped on the roof for hours and hours in the freezing cold. And like a thousand people, that's coming from the smoke inhalation. So it was, it was a huge thing. Um, and there was a, a superficial, well, there was a sanity in Yusef's madness, right? In the, because when I initially, you know, heard of this whole thing, it's like, well, how, how do you think you're going to stop U.S. support to Israel by setting a bomb off at the World Trade Center? But his thing was that the bombs the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki killed about 100,000 people each, right. and that caused the Japanese to surrender. So he figured that if he could cause one trade center to topple into the other, to topple over New York, you could get into the hundreds of thousands of casualties potentially. And if then this inspired further attacks pretty soon, the United States would have to surrender. And there's, it's completely bonkers, but there's, you can see there's a superficial kind of logic to this, you know, evil insanity, right? Sure. You, and, and while at the same time, just to add to it, he also states that the World Trade Center is seen as like the, at the center of uh, jewelry itself in the financial district. Right, he, also yeah. saw that, he also saw that by knocking down these towers, you're knocking down, uh, in, in, a, in, a, um, in a sense, you're knocking down the might of the, of the United States because the, you know, the World Trade Center is considered the, you know, the largest building in the United States. And that they see when you knock these down, you can knock down the power of the United States in a, in a, um, in a sense. In a but, symbolic um, way. I've heard different views as to how close they came from the uh, urea nitrate bomb didn't stand a chance of bringing the towers down to if they just placed in a different position, it might have done exactly that or it might have caused this. There's some, I'm not from New York, so you know, because apparently there's a barrier there that stops the Hudson River doing something and that could have fractured and flooded the whole place. What, what's your view on how close they might have come? Because I think it's, it's quite relevant to understanding it really. Sure, it was the FBI that stated later on that if they need just parked 200 feet, uh, I think it was eastward, uh, from going, no, it's 200 feet west of where he, where he came in at. There's a, a section where there's like uh, four beams. So the southern beam is one beam that, that actually holds um, southern part of the North Tower. If he parked there, he might have had a chance to have tower lean but the towers were made um to have impact from planes where it, 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 it almost like a um, um a fly character net where you know if there's a object that goes into it it would sway instead mm -hmm. of having the building solidified and strengthened where you know it could just part take off parts and come down it, the impact of like blows of like 707s that didn't have full capacity. If they crashed into the World Trade Center, it would just sway into the building. And it, actually, the building did sway. The North Tower did sway when the bomb went off. Um, and most of the injuries were smoke-related injuries. In fact, one person I personally know, he's a friend of mine on Facebook, I won't say his name, but he was actually uh, um, a middle schooler. He was actually in the elevator, and the elevator stopped, and he was there for seven hours. And he was trapped there. Um, but... Uh, according to the FBI, yeah, if Yusuf just parked, I think Yusuf miscalculated. But remember, Yusuf also didn't do uh, his due diligence and really investigate where he wanted to park the bomb. It just leads me to believe that Yusuf wasn't a very good long-term planner. Um, he might have been uh, a good manager of uh, organizing these plots. He really, uh, really, I think, could have done a lot more damage. And he says later on that if he just had enough money, um, he's supposedly he's in a helicopter, he's in a plane that he gets caught um, going into Madden by the FBI. And he states to the FBI agent uh, who's looking at him, who says that he didn't knock these down. He says, if I had enough money, I would have. Um, so even though he had necessary funds to build the bomb, it just leads to believe that um, his money actually came from uh, the Farouk mosque. Why didn't he get the necessary funding um, from the mosque itself to build a bigger bomb? Yeah, because they, they weren't short of money, were they? Right. Because, yeah, they, were they weren't short of money. But remember, too, 
this goes into contradiction that uh, when Blind Jake is going around the, the country itself, he's actually getting funding from notable uh, mosques, Islamic mosques in Tucson, in Detroit, in Tampa Bay, in Jersey, in New York. He's getting all this money. Where's this money going? Well, it's going to uh, funding these plots. Reasonably, how on earth did he not get necessary funding to build a big bomb? But I think it was just a timing factor itself that he wanted to rush this operation to get something going. And I think that was the reason why uh, Yusuf didn't build a bigger bomb. Whether that's the case, I'm just assuming here. I think that's a reasonable scenario itself. Yeah, just just to be clear on that point about the funding, um, the blind sheikh was presenting this as supporting Islamism overseas, or it was presented as an Islamic charity setup, right? I mean, he wasn't going around saying, we're going to blow up the World Trade Center for the full thing. Right. Actually, he, go, he goes, he actually wants to build uh, the Al-Kifa mosque, the Al-Kifa refugee center bigger. He wanted to build uh, more mosques around the country, especially in New Jersey and New York. He actually wanted to become a prime emir inside the United States. Right, yeah. But meanwhile, also, too, he's getting funding from the Maktab al-Kidamat as well, uh, which was the, uh, the Pakistan recruitment office that was recruiting Mujahideen into the, the Soviet, uh, 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 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But remember, um, that, 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 even though the war ended, that center was still getting funding from notable uh, high-ranking Saudi officials in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere as well. So it, it, it leads me to believe that also, too, that the operation for 1993, much like 9-11, I believe, was supposed to be much bigger, but that they just didn't have the time to carry out these operations. Also, too, remember that um, I also mentioned in a future interview that um, it was also supposed to be landmark plot. That was supposed to be much bigger, too, than but the World Trade Center plot was, um, was to get maximum casualties. I believe Yusuf actually, in his sentencing, he said, he wanted to cause 25,000 deaths, whether that was a, a number he created, I don't know, but it seems reasonable itself. Just to say, with regard to the planning, um, the mosque had a man inside the New York Fire Department, right, an accountant who was getting documents out on the, the uh, architecture of New York City buildings and landmarks and such. Right. I, you know what? And I was thinking about the name off the top of my head. I can't get it. And um, geez, I can't I can't remember his name. Yes, that's right. He actually gets blueprints, and he uh, actually gives them to the Omar Abdel Rahman. And this is for the landmark plot, actually. It's landmark um, plot, okay? Is that yeah? Yeah. So I'll I'll okay, you know we'll, we'll come back I'll, to that for the landmark plot, and I wasn't yeah, sure about the the chronology right. of that. So right. back to Yusuf then. He flees the country. Right. He he goes back to Pakistan. Um, but yep. Meanwhile, the FBI was able to retrieve the VIN number from the rider truck's axle, which shockingly survived the blast. And so they, I don't know if we mentioned, but it was, they rented a truck, right? They rented they a rider truck. truck. Yeah. Salami rents the rider truck. And that was a, a controversial decision, wasn't it? Because they, they actually kind of, the, the, the FBI just tell, I don't think the word is tampering with a crime scene, but they, they, they saw the opportunity to get some vital evidence and went for it. And there was a disagreement within the agents on the ground there, but it, it turned out to be, well, highly, yeah. highly relevant. They got the number and traced the truck. That's correct. In fact, they, they really, they didn't, they didn't expect uh, the axle to survive. But they found the, the axle survived, it was mangled, but they, they unbelievably got the vent of it. So just, I don't know how it survived itself, but it was just like a sheer choice of luck that they got it. Uh, and then when they, traced the VIN number back to this uh, uh, rider truck company, Jersey, which was rented. Uh, Sal Salami astonishingly went back for the rider truck deposit, which was Yeah, this out. is these, Ramsey says, co-conspirator, the one that couldn't drive. Right. And this right. is right. perhaps the most incredulous and unbelievable part of this entire story this, so this, far. This, this, this like defies common sense. You would think that these people would have enough money to, to get money and flee the country, which I've seen fit. He, he flew to Iraq, Yusuf went to Afghanistan. Meanwhile, Abilima and Al-Gabroni and the rest of the Al-Farouk mosques who uh, went back into their native uh, New York and New Jersey, Salami, astonishingly, he's going to flee the country, but he didn't have enough money. He didn't have any money whatsoever. 
So he went back for the deposit of $200 because he couldn't uh, afford a flight that could risky. Yeah, now, I, Ramsey Youssef flew out first class, just to make it clear there wasn't like a short of money. Yeah. He, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't short of that much money, but he had enough to escape to Pakistan first class. So similar now, to, um, to how Youssef came into the country, was, um, was this a setup again, right, to... Yeah, I wonder, yeah, it, well, it, this is, I, I also want to be very careful here. Now, whether you want to say that this was a setup for Salami and the rest of the Fruit Mosque members to get arrested, and because they really didn't know who Ramsey Yusuf was, and Ramsey Yusuf was his actual name, um, so he was given an alias, and they didn't know anything really about him, whether this was to, to focus the FBI on them and not on Ramsey Yusuf, that seems plausible. So yeah, and, I'm sorry, we probably should just develop the narrative a bit more. He, he went back and had this ridiculous conversation trying to get some money out of the, the rental agency, um, right. but he didn't know he was talking to an FBI agent that's right. at the time. And the guy does not come across as particularly bright in the transcript, right? Because he actually manages to argue himself down by about $50. You know, that's it's, correct. It's incredible. He, he actually um, gets $150. Um, and he had, actually, the FBI waiting outside is like antsy, and they, they are hearing conversation which I think last two hours but the guy behind the desk was an FBI agent posing as a rider truck uh, employee he, he's like milking it because uh, you know he knows he's got Salami captured and whatnot. But he's like almost like uh, loading in the fact that you know he wants to get as much information out from him. he's also mm. um, uh, making light of the situation so he's he's actually waiting waiting the other FBI agents out when Salami actually goes down, he gets $150, then leaves. And then while he leaves, he gets arrested. Um, and he gets, he gets uh, Yeah, uh, and the FBI nearly yeah. bundled that too, right? Because they, they accidentally informed the media about the rental truck. And media, they were having to misdirect media vans turning upside outside to record. Right, they, cut, the, they were outside, right thing. outside in view. Right, you're right about that. Actually, they were outside in view, so they had to take meteor truck outside and pop them like two blocks away. Um, and I think that's the reason why that, you know, the, the FBI agent inside um, is actually talking to him for a while so they can get the media outside. But it, it leads, it also leads back into your point, the FBI really like, just were just like this bungling uh, procurement, like these, these, cop, these cops that you see in like TV and the media, these bungling cops that come out with these batons and they come out of the car looking silly. But um, not to make light of the subject itself, but the FBI really like caught their pants down in this whole regard because they almost um, blew this whole operation. And because of some blind luck um, that they, they arrested Salami. Hmm. But otherwise, I think, you know, they would have never caught anybody. Salami would have just had money. He would have left. And they would have still uh, probably wouldn't have caught to use up later on down the road, but Salami actually gives them some information which leads into Yusuf's arrest, which I'll get into in another. And uh, they, they, they let uh, the other fellow involved go, didn't they? Actually, went to the apartment of Mahoud Abelina and his roommate was there, and they, they didn't realize who they were talking to. That's correct. In fact, they, they had no idea. In fact, a lot of these guys, they didn't have no idea about the hierarchy of Al Farouk Al Gabroni. At judge, they had no idea. They didn't know who Abu Abu was because they lost the eyes and ears of Imad Salem. So, the, and because John Atkinson and Louis Napoli just didn't have the necessary capabilities of following all these people around, it was like these people were like free to uh, rein in their operations with, uh, without any hesitation by the FBI itself. And it just goes to show you the lack of um, the lack of uh, opportunities that the FBI had and the New York City Joint Terrorism Task Force, which only had two people like Antasis and Napoli, but they didn't have any superior. They just didn't have the manpower and they just would, they just didn't have necessary uh, capabilities of having this wide uh, uh, ranging conspiracy involving Arab fundamentalism, which they had no idea existed. Okay, so we're going to go on to the landmarks plot next time. I don't know if there's anything more you want to say on the narrative of these events this time. Um, if so, please do. And if not, 
I've just got a couple of more open-ended questions to round off with. Sure, if you have, I'll, I'll be happy. Well, my, my first more open-ended one is I'd never really considered what was the impact on the United States as a result of this. Okay, because you've got the, the Cold War is not so long ago ended and you've got the Clinton administration has come in. Okay, um, so, and now you've got this, this terrorist event. And with, with the Oklahoma City bombing, I believe that did have an impact on some domestic legislation uh, to do with law enforcement. And obviously, September the 11th had a massive impact on everything, like foreign wars and the rolling out of the Patriot Act, indefinite detention about trial, all this kind of massive revolution, really, in the United States. I don't know anything about the impact of the 1993 bombing. What was there any? What what was it? What changed as a consequence of? I I I was in New York when it happened. Actually, when when 93 bombing happened, it was a shock, and we really didn't. We were as a country, we were completely ignorant to Arab fundamentalism, militant Islamic fundamentalism, and geopolitics regarding the region itself. So it was a shock to us, and I think that shock. Uh, relented in the fact that when co-conspirators of the 93 bombing were arrested, the FBI foolishly and hurriedly stated that there was no wide-ranging Islamic conspiracy residing inside the United States. There was no uh, huge organization that was willing to uh, cause mass destruction. We caught everybody. In other words, they caught the guilty party, and that's it. That's the end of it. So there was no rush to um, create uh, future legislation or regulations regarding uh, our geopolitics or our intelligence agencies regarding the matter itself, which was still residing in the country, but we had no idea. Whether you want to believe that the FBI really didn't have any idea, I think they did. Now, when it comes to CIA, they did. And they just didn't want to share that information with the FBI. And we see that most notably in the 9-11 operation, okay? More, more notably there than anywhere else. But regarding um, just sheer ignorance, which was uh, regarding these uh, terrorist cells operating in the United States, yes, the FBI was completely ignorant on a general basis regarding this. So that, you know, when they gave the press conference uh, after the landmark spot, not the, you know, uh, which I'll get into in the next interview, yeah, they, they even went on national TV and said that, you know, it's all over. And But there was one person who wasn't an FBI agent, who was a, a fire department uh, employee. His name was, um, I think that's going to kill me. Um, Ronald Buka, that's his name, Ronnie Buka. Ronnie Buka actually, Ron, yeah. um, Ronnie Buka actually has in his, in his house, he has this, um, uh, this chart of like a uh, terrorist organization, these cells, the Brooklyn cell that was operating uh, Mom uh, Abdel Rahman that was operating in the United States, he keeps files and he relates this information to the FBI and they just ignore him. And he states that when the FBI went on TV and says that there's no uh, terrorist cell anymore, he, he then goes to New York City uh, uh, FBI office and says, no, that the operation is still ongoing, these cells still exist, they just ignore him whatsoever. Yeah, he, he, was so, a, he was a kind of I don't quite understand how this functions because he was a fire officer, but he was some sort of reserve right. special forces or military intelligence guy. He had right, some... that's exactly right. Yes, he is actually uh, in, in the intelligence field in the military, but he, um, he actually, uh, with these intelligence contacts as well, he's able to get the files that other ordinary people couldn't. So he's keeping files on Abdel Rahman, he's keeping files on the landmark plot, Sidney Ali, who's in charge of that. So he's keeping tracks upon these organizations that are in Egypt, that are in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And it's amazing that, you know, because his wife later on gives these files to the FBI later on. But, um, but during that time frame, they completely ignore him. They think that, you know, he's just some, you know, he's exaggerating that there's no, uh, no uh, organizations operating inside the United States. Meanwhile, he has information that sure is. But the FBI completely ignores him. Now, this leads to the open-ended conspiracy theory that the FBI wanted this to happen and whatnot. I'm, I'm more the belief that they just didn't believe them, that they just... Well, uh, yeah, okay, that, that's my final question, the, the open-ended one then. With the assassinations we looked at last episode, we encountered the same thing, really, of a lot of 
FBI incompetence and um, and an unwillingness to acknowledge the scale of the plot going on, right? Where always attributing the minimum to it, like it's a lone gunman, okay, and not a wider cell. And it's a limited phenomenon in terms of the bombing. It's not a, a, a really large Islamic terror threat that's taking place here. And yeah, you can look at that on one level and talk about, well, just FBI um, absence of resources, incompetence. But of course, you, you also know that the, the CIA brought Rachman into the country. And then you've got to ask the question, well, do they have an influence there? Are they diverting attention away from him? And what, one thing that occurred to me is that I, I'm certainly not saying the CIA wanted to do the bombing or did the bombing through this, this cell, right? But in a sense, it's kind of indistinguishable because what, what would you expect to see if that was the case? You'd expect to see um, some agent within the FBI who's in charge of the investigation, continuously bundling everything, turning off microphones when they should be on, pulling out the inside man who's going to ruin the whole thing, and a continuous series of errors, and, and then it goes off. So I'm not saying, and I'm really not saying that they, they wanted the bomb to go off, but it's kind of indistinguishable, right? And that's, right. that's the, the dark tragedy of it. And you can certainly see why people would think with all the incredulous points. There's got to be a deeper story here. There's got to be, you know. Um, so I suppose that's my, my final question is, is there any sense you can get a handle of to what extent the CIA had any involvement in this or Mossad, their monitoring? Because, you know, I would think that if the CIA brought someone like Rahman, the blind sheikh, into the country for their own geopolitical purposes, he could be handy for the situation that might emerge in Egypt. Uh, you'd want to keep him on a fairly tight leash, right? You'd want to have his whereabouts booked. You'd want to have some sort of inside man there monitoring him. Now, maybe they don't. Maybe they're just callous or unconcerned of that or didn't foresee the problems it would, it would cause. But, um, you know, speaking to that, that clip, are we just talking about FBI incompetency or do you think there was, for whatever reason, the CIA restricting the actions of the FBI and law enforcement? I think it's a combination of both. I think the FBI was completely uh, shorthanded when it comes to the uh, the topic of uh, Arab fundamentalism. Uh, these organizations that uh, are operating within the the country itself that was an ex it did an extent existential threat to the security of the nation. I just don't think the FBI had the necessary manpower. To combat this. Now, I think also, too, the CIA itself, which, by the way, um, saw, still saw Rockman as a valuable asset, even inside the United States. But remember this, I, I have to make this quite clear, the CIA is not permitted illegally to collect intelligence concerning the domestic activities of the U.S. citizens, which they remain silent to this day, their close connections to the blind sheik. Now, in 2008, there was an executive order, one, one 13470, which would authorize the CIA to conduct counterintelligence activity without assuming or performing internal security functions within the U.S. because it's illegal to do so. Uh, the CIA can't conduct surveillance on American citizens or have operatives in the United States, which is the reason why the CIA still to this day cannot admit that they had close connections to Rahman because he was inside the United mm -hmm. States. They're the ones who gave him the U.S. visa because also, to add, when he got his visa at the embassy in Egypt, it was a CIA agent that gave him, personally... Yeah, it was actually um, Frank Weissner's son, wasn't it? That's right. Yes, it was. Right. But remember also, too, the CIA knows what's going on. They needed covert information. They knew that they were breaking uh, U.S. law, breaking their law, by having Rachman still as an operative, still as a close, open contact inside the United States. But they can't admit it. Right? They, but they needed that information. That information from the blind shape can't be shared with the FBI. Why? Because it's illegal to have an operative inside working inside the United States because the CIA is not permitted and not allowed to conduct uh, covert, uh, collect human intelligence, human, uh, human intelligence uh, concerning the activities of U.S. citizens. That's okay. the reason why the CIA had a, had a distant relationship with the FBI. They couldn't share the information. Well, one 
point that I think goes against, for me, like goes against the idea that the FBI were being held back in some way is that I can't see the, the interface, the contact points where that would happen. Right. So like no, no one from the FBI has, has come out and said, yeah, we couldn't proceed with this because we received pressure from the CIA. Right. And people like Carson Dunbar look like, well, basically villains at the end of this, right. Yeah. He, you know, and you would think that, if he was getting instructions from on high, there's always this chance he's going to blow the whistle on that and say, hey, I, I wasn't this incompetent fool. I was under orders for national security that there was some great operation going on. And I don't, I don't see that at any point, right? There's, there doesn't seem to, to come out. So, I mean, again, again that, that takes me to my limit of the understanding of the whole area, right? So I can't, um, I can't really speak beyond that. I'm just highlighting what will be obvious to me, like, like you know, how the CIA would be restricting. Right. In regards to Dunbar, by the way, who was in charge of the uh, FBI field office in New York, he actually makes the situation worse for Emad Salem because when he gets when he gets to that position, Costco, he changes the contract with Emad Salem. He forces Emad Salem to accept a new contract, which he doesn't do anyway. He says that Emad Salem must wear a wire. He must testify against the members of the Alfred Fox and the Pine Shake. And there's no stipulation regarding to that. Imad Slim has a huge argument with him and states that the reason why they did that is so that they can uh, ruin the, um, the investigation itself. He thinks it's manipulative uh, that he does this. He, he acts nefarious. He thinks that Carson Dunbar is um, someone who either wants him out as a, um, as a uh, contact within the FBI or that he's trying to set him up uh, to use the information to get rid of him altogether. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I know that he thinks that he's he actually wants to be killed or something like that. So, so here's my point, Adam. When I like, I think the first book on nine eleven I read was Mike Rupert's uh, Crossing the Rubicon, right? And he talked about CIA having assets within the FBI who would play like a vital role at certain junctions to make sure certain investigations got suppressed and plots could go ahead, right? And if you zoom out and look at it from a distance, you could say, well, like a Carson Dunbar figure okay, well, what if he was like a CIA asset and this, like someone wanted whatever the Blind Shakes plot was to go ahead and you've got someone who's there actively sabotaging at every step of the way. And that kind of makes sense. But, and then you zoom in and you think, well, I can't, yeah, I don't know, because to do that, he's got to basically have his reputation ruined and look like a complete fool, um, malevolent even, and maybe just incompetence, racism, sexism, total arrogance are better explanations for why Dunbar did what he did. Right. Well, I, I, I don't have concrete evidence that uh, the CIA contacted Dunbar or had any contact with him whatsoever at a future related date. Um, I can say this, that uh, he actually is somebody who's um, uh, had contact with the high level uh, he had contacts within the FBI that had affiliations with the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, whether you want to connect the dots to say that he might have tried to uh, manipulate or tried to intervene in the attacks itself, I'll leave that up to you. Um, but he does become the New Jersey, he becomes the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police later on. He's currently uh, working as the senior vice president um, of Mutual of America. Um, been there for 17 years now, crossing Dunbar. Um, so he does have contacts in high places later on. But um, yeah, I mean, I share your concern regarding Dunbar and why he would try to force Imad Salem to become, uh, to, to, you know, to have uh, to have Imad Salem uh, outed, so to speak, and you know, have his uh, his wife, his, his children, his family in Egypt uh, affected by this mm. because. If he testifies, he's you know, he's done for, and his family's killed because they, you know they live in Egypt, and they could be killed by either like Egyptian Islamic Jihad or the Gamma Islamia, which is uh, the Black Sheep Kingdom. But it, it really makes you concerned as to why Dunbar himself um, does this and changes the contract with Imad Slim. But I think also too that he doesn't like Nancy Floyd. I brought that up before. Yeah. He doesn't trust Nancy Floyd itself in their relationship with that. I think that's. That's trivial in itself. I think it was that Dunbar himself could have been pressured by 
somewhere higher up to uh, sure. and I go down this line because I think you know depending on whether you're a conspiracy theorist or an incompetence right. theorist you you're going to see this question two different ways and I think it's going to become relevant again if we talk about Alex station and why decisions were made there to monitor and not monitor Islamic terrorists and if we talk right. about someone like Sybil Edmonds, the whistleblower from the FBI, and why she was prevented from pursuing certain lines of investigation and things she was highlighting. These kind of questions of like, are people acting from a place of conspiracy or incompetence are going to come up again and again. So I just want to put them on the table when, as and when they do. You know, right, but you're, you're gonna, especially when we talk about 9 11. Yeah. About yeah. the issue station, Courtney Ballard station. Yes. We're definitely going to see a much more uh, definitive aspect between two agencies, the FBI, CIA. And you're going to see how these two agencies competed for information and how one agency seemed so much more nefarious than the other. Because I know that there are other people out there who don't trust the FBI and that they see them as a nefarious agency, so to speak. But with 9-11, you're going to see the CIA as a much more existential threat to the American citizenry and the FBI. Even though the FBI does play a part in like suppressing information later on, but before 9-11, the CIA is absolutely complicit in it. And we'll talk about that in future. Okay, okay. Thank you very much, Adam. We'll, we'll leave it there. And um, back next time for the, the Landmarks plot and the return of Imad Salem into this, into this theater and the arrest of some of the people we've been talking about so far. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you.